0: Hello, I'm Anne-Marie Rooks, co-creator of the Edge Effect podcast, and founder of JTB Homesteads. The Edge Effect describes a phenomenon that appears in nature where two different ecosystems meet. This junction usually displays a more vast diversity of life than the two separate ecosystems. For our use we refer to the junction of two cultures. The dominant Western culture that does not serve all of us and a new culture that we must all build to provide justice, equity, compassion, ecological regeneration and peace. In this episode, we'll be chatting with John Stolmeyer. So, given that... Western culture is not serving us. It's not providing the means for everyone to thrive. Why is that?
1: Okay, so this actually is not the first time this has happened. (laughs) Civilizations rise and fall. Right. From the very beginning, the Sumerians, you know, the Persians, the Egyptians, they all had their day in the sun. And they were all, you know, they were all brought down. And at the basis of it usually is, is ecological collapse. But there's also a natural process that goes through civilizations, which is that be, because they're literate, because they have written language and they have hierarchies, and so they have an educated elite and at the top and at the bottom, they have the agricultural peasants. So, and then they have all the various classes in between that have different levels of access to resources, different levels of respect and and so on. So these hierarchical cultures with an educated elite naturally have a life cycle. At the beginning, Education creates great minds, creates great art, creates, you know, um, good laws and so on. But that like every living thing, they get old, they get corrupt and they, they become fragile. They become brittle and they become fragile. And one of the reasons is, is because this educated elite has no contact with primary production that is producing food. And so their needs and their view of the world is so far removed from the needs of the people who are actually producing the basics that they can no longer make decisions that benefit the whole. Mm. They continue to make self-serving decisions. So this has happened with every empire that has preceded our own. You know, I I mean, I I like to list it. I mean, so the Sumerians were beaten by the Assyrians, then the Persians, then the Egyptians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, then the Germans, then the French, then the English, and now the Americans. The Anglo-American Empire is the the civilization that we were born into, and it is already past its peak. Mm -hmm. How you recognize the peak of a civilization is that The people worship actors, sportsmen, (laughs) um, chefs, and I don't know what else, but celebrities, basically. There's a celebrity culture. So every civilization has gone through that phase of, you know, the people just completely glorifying um, celebrities and sports and musicians. That's the other one. Yeah, those are sports people and and, um, actors. So that is a a sign of the end of the the beginning of the end of a civilization. So we are in decline. And the other thing that limits civilizations, for example, the Greeks and the Romans, they depended on wheat for their energy to feed their horses. And it was their horses, you know, which carried their soldiers uh, out to battle. So there, where they grew their wheat was in North Africa. And so they um, depended on the wheat coming from North Africa in order to feed their culture. And at some point, of course, well, you know, now North Africa is a desert. So that was starting to happen back then, right? That they were over-harvesting. They were, you know, taking more than the land could um, repair it fat taking the, 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 the wheat out faster than the land could repair itself. Yep. And so that is part of the reason why those civilizations collapse, is the lo- loss of energy. Okay. Our civilization, which is dependent on fossil fuels, has reached the same point. We reached the peak of um, regular oil um, in 2005. Mm-hmm. We started plateauing in 2005. So our energy source is going to be in decline indefinitely for us, for our lifetimes and beyond. So that is the place that we're in right now. And um, yeah, so to answer your question,
0: <laughs> right. So, do we? What do we do now? <laughs> what are we to do? Are we to to? Is there anything for us to fix? Or is there some is there is there a chance that we could uh, find a way to fix this, or do we have to rethink everything from top to bottom, left to right?
1: Um, I am I'm, I'm 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 caught between you know the, the horns of a dilemma here because. <laughs> It's, it's it's both and and it's neither. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So we can't fix it. We cannot prevent the decline. The decline mm-hmm. is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we can do, um, well, okay. So we have to look back at the examples of what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So basically it's the end of the religion of progress. You know, our, our, uh, dominant culture or Western culture, we worship progress. We assume that, you know, human beings are progressing towards a utopian future. Um, for, for our culture, it's a technological future, the singularity where computers and humans become one and, you know, we head off to the stars. <laughs> well, that mythology is, is has run out of any basis in reality. And so... We are living on a finite planet um, with finite resources and our population has already passed the carrying capacity of the planet that in order to feed 7 billion people plus, um, at least 200 species are going extinct every day because of pollution, because of habitat loss um, and so on. So we're, we're in a phase where we are sort of between empires. We don't know what the next empire is gonna look like. There are some people who are suggesting this is the last empire that we had. Um, a, our first experience as human beings on the planet was tribal. We lived in tribes of small groups and then we discovered agriculture. And we have lived up until now in the age of empire and empires um, try to control more and more people and they have to grow constantly in order to maintain the hierarchy. In order to feed the the elite that don't actually produce anything, um, they need to grow continuously. So since that is over, We're not going to be able to grow ourselves out of our problems. We have to now look at where we are and what resources are available to us locally. So this brings me to what I mean by bioregion. So bioregion literally means a life place. And it's a movement that came out of the Back to the Land Intentional Community Movement of the 60s Um, the hippies and the communes. um, Basically, um, people dropped out of society and they went to live on the land. They grew their own food organically. They established relationships with native spirituality. They had their children at home. They homeschooled. They practiced midwifery. This is the culture of the 60s that um, you know, we, we refer to as the hippies. Mm-hmm. Well, they, um, they had everything right, and they um, are still around. So what happened in the '80s um, is that um, a guy called David Henke, living in the Ozarks, and a member of the Ozarks Community Congress he did his university PhD on intentional communities. And so he traveled around North America meeting with those communities. And what he realized is that they didn't know about each other, that all those various experiments that had taken place in the 60s and 70s, that the mainstream media was always very happy to announce the failures, but they never talked about the successes. So David Henke, having realized that all of these people are functioning brilliantly in their communes around in North America, he organized the first North American bi-regional Congress. And so members of those communities sent a representative um, to the Congress, and they spent a week where they created a ceremonial village and they Congress. They, they broke up into different affinity groups where they discussed the issues that they were interested in, whether it was water, organic agriculture, um, social justice, you know, all the various issues that, that human cultures deal with. And um, at the end, they would have a plenary session where they would all come together and come up with a blueprint for the ecological age. So that the... the, the um, The proceedings of the Congress, you know, would put all this stuff together. I was living in Toronto in the 80s. And in 1988, I um, got a journal, well, I got the copy of a journal. I had been following the journal for a while. It was called the New Catalyst Journal. And it was being produced by an intentional community in British Columbia. And in 1988, they hosted the third North American Bi-Regional Congress. And so they advertised the proceedings in the the journal. And I sent for it. And I was just blown away. I mean, this thing just rang true to me deep down to my soul. I had found my people. That is the only way I could describe it.
0: Describe what you were seeing being illustrated in the journal that got you so excited.
1: Well, it was all that stuff. The organic agriculture, the Mm -hmm. homeschooling. The native spirituality. Mm-hmm. It was all uh, the whole worldview. You know, mm-hmm. the worldview was a rejection of Western civilization for a back to the land um, and ecological and living within the limits. That to me, I guess really that is the key piece is learning to live within the limits of the precise ecosystem watershed. By region that you live in. So that, that, was, that was the thing. But I, I would say more specifically, something I discovered when I got the proceedings, which I wasn't aware of before, is the magic committee. There was a committee within the, um, the Congress known as the magic committee. And magic standing for mischief, animism, geomancy, and interspecies communication. So that is what really got me super excited. As it turns out, this was 1990. They had a Congress every two years. So in 1990, the next Congress was going to be in Maine, which was in driving distance from Toronto. And so it, it coincided with that year, Caribana, I had played a vulture um, in Shadowlands band, Birds are Us. And so I had this vulture costume. And so I had this idea that I would go to the bi-regional Congress to represent winged beings. So that's the thing I need to, to, to point out, is that the Magic Committee's role in the Congress was to represent other species so that they could stand in for the rooted beings, the water beings, the winged beings, and the four-legged beings. So that when the humans, when the two-legged beings were discussing you know, how to go forward into this ecological age, that these four individuals would be listening from the point of view of the other species and would be able to interrupt if they heard anything that you know, um, struck them as um, impinging on the rights of other species. So that was the piece that really um, got me very um, highly motivated to be there and and to be part of it, yeah.
0: Bioregionalism sounds like it's touching on all the areas of our lives that naturally connect together. Um, And the only thing that makes it different from what governments uh, attempt to do would be the interspecies communication, and what's the C again in the magic?
1: Um, the G geomancy. Geomancy. Uh huh. The I the G- is Geo G- is the word for earth, right? So it, it's geomancy. I'm not sure. I would have to look that up, but it's it's communication to the earth, the connection to the earth. Yeah. Sure.
0: And the I is interspecies communication, interspecies. and the
1: interspecies communication. Yeah, and the C is what communication Communication, right? Is that what it... Yes, correct. Right. Okay.
0: Yes. So, I, I, I. This is something that's missing in 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 again in our system of governance. But if we consider what we have and what. Bioregionalism is trying to, to, I suppose, not so much identify, but at least faithfully represent that needs to be connected as far as people are concerned. How do we translate bioregionalism now to what we would like to see happen with how we exist now. How can we translate that to the here and now? Let's say in Trinidad and Tobago, yeah. In 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 this space that we live, because we do live on, in live in a particular bioregion.
1: That's right. Correct.
0: We are very close to, to 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 South America, and that happens to be our bioregion or part of it. Yeah. Yes. Um, how do we How do we now take this information and make the relevant changes? What do we really need to do? What's the first step? Education. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, so people have to hear about um, the worldview. They have to, be, um, have, to have it, um, be exposed to it. Um, but the, the real key is getting children into nature. Okay. The, the absolute ground um, of how this thing is going to change is getting children into nature, giving children unstructured time in nature, um, just enough adults around <clears throat> to make sure they don't get into trouble, they don't get hurt, they don't hurt each other, but children just being allowed to be in nature and to explore uh, and then you know, to ask questions and learn about all the relationships you know, what animals are feeding on what plants and what seasons do um, certain things flower? Um, When do the um, animals um, have their mating season? You know, really getting to be be closely in touch with the seasons and the cycles of nature in our particular system. So the word bi-region refers to the largest and or smallest um, area that a human culture can be 100% self-sufficient, needing absolutely nothing from the rest of the world. So the problem with our culture, with our uh, um, Western modern civilization, is globalization, is that our dependency on the global um, market and and on the global um, chain, what do they call that? Not food chain, but supply the global,
0: chain, supply huh? chain, the supply, supply chain,
1: chain <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the global supply chain. Yeah. So what the global supply chain has done is has, it has allowed people to live where normally they would not be able to live yeah. right? because they, all, all their needs are being brought to them. Mm-hmm. But up until now, you know, they have been that has been only possible because of cheap fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And that time is going away very fast. So we have to start looking at what are the foods that grow locally that are edible. And we are very fortunate that if we go up into the headwaters of the Orinoco watershed, so we are in the Orinoco watershed bioregion. That is the large river that our Twin Islands state, we are right in the mouth of the Delta, and all our species come from there. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the indigenous people that still inhabit the Orinoco watershed still, you know, know what's edible. They know what's medicine. They know what's poisonous, and they know when to reap and when to sow. All these things are part of their culture. So we need to get back that culture. We need to have people interact with those people. We need to have um, um, to learn from them. We need to get that experience so that we can begin to re-identify what can be grown here and, 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 is, and is good, safe to eat. And beyond that, um, from a permaculture point of view, we need to bring in um, species from around the tropics um, that we can grow in Trinidad. We can naturalize more edible um, foods, more edible um, species um, um, in, in Trinidad um, so that we have a wide range of things to eat and not dependent on the imp- importation of flour and um, powdered milk.
0: You have been listening to The Edge Effect, produced by JTB Homesteads and Global Villages Development Consultants. Editing services by John Francis of The Legion and music by To Renaissance. Mm-hmm.